Facebook. I think I've probably, have, is that the thing you get invitations to? Or is that something else? See, I really know this stuff, so I've got it down. But um, I, th- I just think whatever it is, you know, you get invited to, to join somebody on, I probably have frustrated so many people because I just have never accepted that. And, but that's not Facebook. No, all right, that's something else. Okay. Well, um, let me put my two cents worth in for Easter. With our three services that we're doing in order to make sure we got enough room for everybody, means that we, we need you. We need extra volunteers for our nursery and, and our preschool programming, and, um, which are going to be provided at all, all three services on, on Easter Sunday, the very early one and the middle one and then, and then the last one. And you have in the uh, uh, bulletin worship folder this morning a little insert that you could fill out, and, and uh, if you know today you would be able to help, uh, you can fill it out and give it to one of the hosts as you leave this morning. That'd be just great because uh, we really do need uh, everybody uh, to join us in this effort to make this uh, a great time of outreach for us as a, as a church. Next Sunday, we'll uh, announce the results of uh, Pave the Way. But just to say that uh, we do have the potential that we could actually uh, uh, get halfway or very close to halfway toward our, toward our goal. So we're, we're moving along, and uh, I just keep saying we need, this is, uh, again, one of those deals where we need everybody, uh, everybody to, to do their part in helping us uh, uh, succeed with this effort this year. Well, if you've, if you've ever gone to a play, in a theater, or remember plays from high school or college days, you, you might remember that most often the story that's presented is done in a three-act structure. In Act 1, we're introduced to the main characters, the, the setting of the story, and at first things are, are normal, but then there's a crisis which leaves the audience wondering how those in the story are going to solve the problem they're now facing. In Act 2, the plot thickens. Perhaps a hero of the story is making his or her way toward a solution, and then uh, there's, there's a twist that makes things even, even worse. It could be, even be several twists. And again, you're left wondering what's going to happen. In Act 3, everything starts building toward a final resolution. It's, it's in this third act that you, you learn how the story ends, how those involved solve the problem they're facing, and, and then it's over and the curtain comes down. Very often the same thing is true of a, of a movie or, or a book. Right now, over the last several weeks, I've been reading a, a biography, a book by the t- uh, title Unbroken, and it's, it's a, a biography on the life of, a, of a, a man by the name of Louis Zamperini, who was a World War II hero. And I, I found out the same thing with that book. It's got three distinct acts to it. I, I thought about this as I prepared today's sermon on, on Jacob. And what occurred to me is that during the first five sermons in this series, we've, we've been in Acts one, Act 1, 
and Act 2. Act 1 took place in the first two sermons where we saw how Jacob and his parents and his brother messed with God's plan for their lives, all of which resulted in a broken family. With Esau making plans to murder his brother and Jacob on the run for his life. Act 2 tells us about Jacob's next 20 years. It's it's here that we find out everything that happened during this year that he had with his father-in-law Laban, and we learn how it was that Jacob ended up with, with two wives and one daughter and 11 sons. And how he went from having nothing but the shirt on his back when he left home to becoming a very wealthy man. Act 2 ends with Jacob knowing his days with Laban are numbered. He discovers that Laban and his sons are making plans to, to take back everything that Jacob had. And these, these were not good guys. They, they were more like Don Corleone's family, you know, the godfather, than, than our own family. They had muscle and not only to take what they wanted, but to end Jacob's life. And, and, and they would not hesitate to do whatever it took to get what they wanted. So, so as the second act ends, Jacob is once again on the run, and this time he's headed home. That's where we ended last week in the fifth sermon in the series. Jacob's on the run, and he's pursued by Laban, which we discovered ends well. God, God intervenes by warning Laban not to do anything against Jacob. And so if you Read the second half of Genesis 31. You'll see Jacob's final encounter with Laban, bringing that part of his life to an end. No longer has to deal with Laban, who for 14 long years used him to his own advantage. But now, now Jacob's headed home, and he's facing what could be a far greater threat to his life. He's facing his brother Esau, and he has, he has no idea what to expect. Last time he saw Esau, it was murder that he saw in his eyes. Now, to change the analogy a little bit, we could say that this third act is divided into three episodes. Uh, it's one of those times that I, I really can't improve on how my, my Bible divided this up. If you've got a a Bible that's got some dark headings on it. I, I found out those, those work really well. And so following the headings that are given to us in chapters 32 and 33, the first episode and, and where we begin today and what we're going to talk about this morning involves Jacob's preparations to meet Esau. So chapter 32, verse 1, we read this. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. And so he named that place Mahanaim. Now, do you remember the last time that Jacob saw angels? Remember that? It was way back in chapter 28 when he was on the run from home, running from his brother, and so now, 20 years later, he's, again, now he's going home to meet Esau. 
and he sees angels. Now, I'd say that's perfect timing on God's part. God, God has a way of doing that, timing things just right so that we have what we need at just the right time. 20 years ago, Jacob seen those angels walking up and down that stairway leading to heaven, having God speak to him, promising to guide and protect him. That was powerful and life-changing for Jacob. And now God's doing the same thing again. God's assuring him of his guidance and his protection exactly the time Jacob needed it. I, I, I love Jacob's comment about this. The first time he saw these angels, he said, wow, this is, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This time he, he says, God's camping here. Yeah? I love that. Now, regarding these angels, here's what's really so good about this. Jacob's experience with angels, where angels are involved in caring for him, isn't unique to Jacob. It's true for all of us, whether we realize it or not. So I thought it might be good just to take a moment to look at three sets of verses that show us this. First of all, this from Psalm 91, where the psalmist writes about God's protection for each one of us. Listen to this. This is a great promise. Psalmist writes, if you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. I mean, just think of that. That's That's a promise for you and me. God's angels are guarding us. How about this from Matthew 18, where Jesus is talking about the value of children. The context is that the disciples ask ask Jesus Christ, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And and, and Jesus calls this little child to himself, and and, and he says this. He said, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he said this. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. And then he said this. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Doesn't leave us wondering, does he? How serious God is about how we value children and how we treat him. God has angels watching out for every child and reporting on what we say to them and what we do to and for them. Wow. Yeah. And then there's this amazing insight in the first chapter of the New Testament book of Hebrews. Amazing insight to what angels are doing for each one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. We're where the writer asks what's really a rhetorical question. He, 
He said, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The writer's not asking us if this is true. He's telling us that it is true. Each and every one of us at some point in our lives have been and will be cared for by God's angels. Now, I... I um, Remember years ago reading a book by Billy Graham. Some of you may have written it on angels. And it was like an eye-opener for me to realize how much angels are still involved in our lives. Now, let me give you a couple experiences in my own life. And don't freak out here, all right? Um, but I'd, I, I actually had years ago, and um, some of you heard this story, and I'm not going to go into it. We don't have time, but before my best friend and I got married, we decided to do this hitchhiking trip to, from Minneapolis to Miami, Florida. A crazy thing, and, but we did it. And on the way back, and we had several very scary experiences in that trip, but on the way back as we came near Chicago, we were coming around Gary, Indiana, we had our most frightening experience of all. I'm not going to go into it, but it was scary, so much so that we got off of the interstate and we went up to what was called uh, Hinsdale Oasis. I don't know if some of you have ever been around the tollway, the interstate. And we just started asking people for rides just to get as far as we could away from the Chicago area and Gary, Indiana and all that. And... Um, that's one person, another person, another person. We weren't having any luck. And then we saw this guy who was about as big as anybody I remember seeing. And scary looking. But we went up to him. It was like, what are we going to do? Went up to this guy and asked him for a ride. And he said, yeah, I'll give you a ride. We got in his car and we started driving. And he kept driving. And this was on a, on a Friday night. And he kept driving, and he kept driving, and he kept driving, and he drove us all the way to Minneapolis through the night, dropped us off at our house. And we said to him, man, you want to stay with us? Because he, he, he's like he would have no conversation with us the whole trip. Dropped us off at the house. We offered, and he said, no, I'll find a place to stay. And he left. Now, we didn't think anything of it until... Several of our friends said to us, are you sure that that wasn't an angel? Huh? Now, who knows? I, I remember in Texas, and I just share this with you because I think sometimes we, we're just not as aware of the possibilities of where God's caring for us. We, because of that invisible world. When, when Beck and I had a few months in Texas, I, I had an experience that I've never forgotten. I, have you ever had that? Have you ever, ever turned on to a one-way, going the wrong way? Anybody ever done that? Yeah. I've done that several times in my life. I did it one time in Texas, but it wasn't turning on to a street. It was turning on to a highway. Has anybody ever done that? Where the traffic is coming, and this was like one of those out-of-body experiences for me 
where it was like, and this is going to sound crazy to you, but it's like something took over and moved my car out of the way where I found myself in the right lane, the one I should have been in, not really understanding how it happened. And I've always wondered about that. I mean, it was mind-blowing for me. All right, well, you're either going to leave going, he's a little crazy, but let's, let's go on. Verse 3, chapter 32, verse 3, all right? Just want you to think about it. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants, and now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. First thing Jacob does is let Esau know he's coming home. And I, I would say that's a very smart thing to do. You know? Very often people don't like surprises. And I don't think this is one he'd want to surprise Esau with. And so he sends his messengers telling Esau where he's been for the last 20 years. I mean, these are a lot of years that have gone by. And Esau could have easily assumed that Jacob never even made it to Laban. Laban said that Jacob's been dead for a long time. His messages also tell Esau that he's had a good measure of success. Telling Esau that he has cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats and men servants and maidservants is another way of saying he's a wealthy man. The most important part of Jacob's message is his request to receive favor from Esau. Another way to say this, he's asking for his brother's invitation to come home. The message they came back with wasn't what Jacob hoped to hear. Esau's on his way. He's not waiting for you. And he's got 400 men with him. That doesn't sound too good, does it? Evidently, Jacob didn't think it did. So verse 7, we read this. In great fear and distress, David, uh, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. And the flocks and herds and camels as well. And he thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Now, read through this chapter and into the next chapter, and you'll see that The first group includes his servants and his animals, and the second is his family and still more servants. And once he does this, he then does the first thing that shows the change that's taken place in who he is. He prays. All right? This is is a big deal for him. And the prayer he prayed is a great prayer. It's, it's, it's one to use it for an example for each one of us on how to pray. So, so look at this in verse 9, his, his prayer. Uh, then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, 
Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. You ever ask yourself the question, what makes a prayer great? What makes a prayer great? Frederick Buchner has a few thoughts on this in a a book he wrote um, titled On the Road with the Archangel. It's just an interesting statement. I'm just going to read it to you. He said, this is from this book, I am Raphael, one of the seven archangels who pass in and out of the presence of the Holy One, God. I bring him the prayers of all who pray and those who don't even know when they're praying. Some prayers I hold out as far as my arm will reach, the way a woman holds a dead mouse by the tail when she removes it from the kitchen. There are prayers so apologetic and shamefaced and half-hearted that they all but melt away in my grasp like sad little flakes of snow. Some, like flowers, are almost too beautiful to touch. And others so aflame that I'd be afraid of their setting me on fire if I weren't already more like a fire than I'm anything else. There are prayers of such power that you might almost say they carry me rather than the other way around. The way, the way a bird with outstretched wings is carried higher and higher on the back of the wind. Here's what, what's great about Jacob's prayer and why it's one to use an example, as an example for our own prayer. First of all, he spoke to God with a great deal of respect for who God is and a great deal of gratitude for what God's done. What God's done not only for him, but also for those who have lived before him. And so he began with this statement, and you, and you see it actually all the way through his prayer, this, this respect for God and gratitude. It's, then Jacob prayed, O oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. There is so much respect and gratitude in that. Isn't it true, everybody? It's so easy in our prayer, especially those that come out of a crisis in our lives. It's so easy to bypass worship, to skip praising God for who God is and thanking God for what he's done. It's so easy to do this every time we pray. What we should do. First, because it's the right thing to do. And second, because it strengthens our own faith as we pray, is begin our prayer by recognizing who it is that we're talking to. To spend time praising God for who he is and and thanking God for what he's done for us, for ourselves, and also for what God's done for others. 
The second thing about Jacob's prayer that I think makes it great is that Jacob spoke to God with a great, deep sense of humility. In his own words, in verse 10, he said, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. You know what, everybody? This is not an easy thing to do. To get ourselves down to size, we need to take enough time to truly consider God's holiness and God's grace and our own unworthiness. It's, it's, it's remembering what God has done to change us for the better, a lot better. It's recognizing our never-ending need of God's grace. It's never, ever getting over the wonder of God's love and God's forgiveness. Here's what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah wrote about this. He said, for this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The third thing about Jacob's prayer that I think makes it great is that he simply stated his need. Very simply, verse 11 said, Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. Here it is, God. Here's my need. Let me ask you, have you, ever, have you ever been in a prayer gathering where people pray as if they got to load up their requests with a lot of really spiritually sounding words and phrases, a bunch of emotion where there's like layers and layers of stuff people think they've got to get through before they can get to what they're asking? Anybody? Have you ever experienced that? In, in, in my opinion, this kind of stuff is distracting. I think it's a waste of time. And to be honest, I think it dishonors God. And here's why. It assumes that God's a whole lot less caring than God really is. And, and it assumes that God doesn't know what's best for our lives. I mean, what does it say if you think that you've got to convince God with words to do something. I think a request simply stated is a very clear and true statement of faith. The, the final thing about Jacob's prayer that got my attention is that it, it, it shows us that he had a perspective on life that, that went beyond his own immediate need. And, and, and so that takes us back to verse 12, to the second half of that verse where, where David prayed this. He said, but you, you have said, I will surely make you prosper. And then we read this, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. See, everybody, Jacob, as he prayed, understood that it wasn't all about himself. See, he, he knew that it had a whole lot more to do with what God would do through him. 
You see, descendants like, like the sand of the sea isn't simply physical descendants that, that Jacob would have. It, it includes every person who is a spiritual descendant. It, it includes every person whose life would ultimately be blessed through Jacob because one of the descendants of Jacob was none other than Jesus Christ. Huh. See, I'd say this is a good thing for all of us to do when we bring our needs to God. To see them in the context of what God wants to do through our lives to bring blessing into the lives of others. You see, this so often impacts the way God answers our prayer. And I think prayer that's truly great and profound, it has this perspective. And so, so Jacob prays, and, and, and then he puts a gift together of hundreds of animals, goats and sheep and camels and cows and, and donkeys, and he sends them with his servants to Esau. And so verse 13, we read this. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams and 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. He put them in care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau and he's coming behind us. He also instructed the second and the third and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant, notice how carefully he said that, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. And so Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That brings us to the end of the first episode. And it leads us into the second where Jacob spends a night wrestling with God. But we're, we're going to stop here because that's next Sunday. And it's our final and I think most important sermon in this series. Now, I just want to summarize this. We've had a lot of applications already. But two final thoughts. You know what, everybody, each one of us have our own story. It's even possible that it's a story that could be put into a book where someone writes our biography. And right now, we're all at different points in our story. Some of us are still in Act 1. Others of us are in Act 2. And there are some of us here today who are in the third and final act of our lives. You might have a lot of years and a lot of episodes left, but we're in Act 3. And however old we are and whichever act we're in, there are two very significant truths for us from Jacob's experience in this passage. And the first one is this. 
Whatever you're facing today or will face tomorrow, God is on your side. God has this incredible, never-ending love for each one of us. And it's out of this love that God always wants the best for you. And God will always care for you. And I think added to this, and I think what we learn from Jacob's story, is that even when what we're facing, the crisis we're in, is of our own making, if we own up to it, God's still on our side. God still cares for us. God's always got our back. That's so good to know. And the younger we are when we understand this makes our lives so much better. Second truth is this. Whatever life brings your way, praying makes all the difference. Oh, it's true, we want to make wise and good decisions. We want, to, we want to seek the counsel of men and women we respect because of their wisdom and experience. We do want to act responsibly and consistently with God's word. But as it was for Jacob, it's still true for us today. His decision to pray changed the outcome of the whole story. Prayer made all the difference. I'll tell you what, it's so much better to learn this in the first act of our life than to wait until the third, but it's never too late. To learn this and be so convinced that it's true that we build the discipline of daily prayer into our lives and, and, and to do this with such intentionality and such care that if God's angel described our prayer, He'd say it had such power that it carried him to heaven. Okay? Well, let's, um, let's prepare ourselves for communion this morning. And I think each one of us can have our own way of preparing ourselves today. It might be that you're in the middle of a crisis in your life right now and and it, it could actually be that you've never brought it to God in prayer. And you, you could do that this morning, just very simply, bringing that to God. And I'm going to ask our hosts if they would come forward and, and begin distributing the bread and, and the cup. And our communion is open for everybody. If you have a personal faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. And uh, let's go ahead and then we'll uh, come back and lead us, all right?